All right, so we're continuing on with our study of the London uh, Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. Uh, it's my turn to do the uh, chapter on uh, justification, chapter 11. Um, <clears throat> just a uh, review, though. Here's where we're at with uh, some of our um, things that we've gone through. We've gone through the covenant defined, covenant servant setting. We are now currently in with the covenant blessings doing chapter 11. Uh, of justification. <clears throat> we'll see how far I get through this. There's quite a bit that's here. Um, if I don't get through everything, we'll continue on next week because uh, next week is also um, adoption. <clears throat> it's a very short uh, passage or, or paragraph in our confession. But um, So if we don't get everything done with justification today, we'll, we'll continue on next week. It's always good to just start just to refresh ourselves. What exactly is justification. Um, if we're going to be talking about it, it's good to have a definition. Our catechism gives a really good one. Um, but what, uh, when you hear the word justification, um, give me some feedback as to what, what is it that you think of first. Not necessarily even within a, the realm of, of Christianity, but when you hear justification, what do you hear? What do you think of? Something made right. Something made right. Okay. Does anybody think of um, like courtroom session, judicial? I'm getting a few nods. Yeah, uh, well, it involves um, somebody that's in a position of getting what they deserve, but <clears throat> are, are justified instead. Um, so our catechism, question number 36, uh, says that justification is the act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, but only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and then received by faith alone. And we'll get into this um, a little bit more about what, what that means. We'll <clears throat> go through it. But um, for today, why, why is this important? Uh, this, this is really a, a very important one, but why, why are we looking at, at this? Uh, one of the reasons, <clears throat> uh, Benjamin Keach said that this is, this is the very pillar of the Christian religion. If we don't have justification... Uh, all we have left is ourselves to try to appease God, and we know where that's going. So this is extremely important. Benjamin Keats says that all other subjects a, a preacher may preach upon, um, and many things to people's profit and advantage, but this particular topic of justification, he has to preach. This he cannot omit, It's because it's so true to uh, the gospel of Christ. If there is no justification, there's no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness. <clears throat> but it also um, distinguished the, um, the Reformation churches from, from that of, of Rome, which is um, one of the reasons why this was, was written, is to 
to contrast and to, to uh, address those objections from Rome. Um, Edward Lee said that, you know, yes, there's a lot of things that he would acknowledge that we, we agreed with, with uh, uh, Roman Catholicism, unity of the person of Christ, um, in two natures not confounded, even the Trinity, the Old and New Testament scriptures, but yet there's a lot of articles of religion that um, they differ, and chiefly that one is justification. Um, <clears throat> more on those differences uh, will come up a little bit later. But justification also answers that fundamental question, uh, exactly how does God save sinners? How can God save sinners? Our creator is to be worshipped aright. He is holy. He is um, perfect in, in all his ways. And so we, obviously, are fallen beings. We are now the objects of God's wrath. How can we worship him when we are his enemies. <clears throat> and this is what justification is, is going to address. <clears throat> so we'll get into uh, the various paragraphs that we have. There's six of them here in justification. And as you're accustomed to understanding now, paragraph one basically gives the, the general idea, the nature of justification, and then the following paragraphs will explain uh, further the um, idea of justification. So these are the various um, things we're going to go through <clears throat> in each paragraph. Um, I was talking with Pastor Nathan this, this past week, and I was reminded, um, do you know how long it took to write this confession? Does anyone know? A little high, but close. Six years. Six years to write this. Um, we're going to go through this first paragraph, and I'm going to read it within one minute. Um, <clears throat> but this was written over 300 years ago, um, and we have not really improved upon it. So as we go through this, <laughs> I want you to, to not just, you know, hearing like, oh yeah, but, but these men poured over the scriptures and we get to benefit the fruits of their labors. Um, I, I'd be curious, I don't know, but how long they must have poured into this one paragraph to get this right on the nature of justification. This is what it says. Um, <clears throat> Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Less than a minute. That had to have taken months to, to come up with, and then those uh, scriptures that they cite at the end there. <clears throat> so I'm going to go through some of this just to um, understand what, um, what they're saying and um, take it one by one. 
So you notice right away it says, those whom effectually calls. You may recall um, the previous chapter, chapter 10, of effectual calling. This is showing that there is a further link in the, uh, the chain of salvation that was actually forged in chapter 3 when, um, and then throughout the, the confession. So we have uh, election, redemption, effectual calling, justification, all brought together to demonstrate God's unity and his purpose for salvation. And so here, chapter 11 links with um, chapter 10 of effectual calling, um, which is the continuation then once the Lord calls, then uh, there must be justification. They also jump right into <clears throat> three denials and three affirmations, which we'll go through each. Um, so this first one, there's a negative, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Why is this one in here? Why did they feel that? Well, this is that, that answer to uh, the objection from Rome, that they would say that righteousness is actually infused into a sinner uh, who was then just righteous on that basis. So they become personally righteous. <clears throat> they are basically become um, righteous on, on that alone. Um, but we know we're never justified on our own. It's not on the basis of what we become, but what Christ has granted to us. <clears throat> What does the scriptures tell us that our righteousness is? Does anyone remember? Filthy rags. That comes from Isaiah 64. Um, Would somebody look up Romans 4, 5? This is part of the... um, part of what they cite here in those scriptures below, Romans 4, 5 through 8. But um, I want you to note something here in Romans 4 or 5. Someone got that one? Uh, Mark? So does that say that the... Uh, <clears throat> It is the ungodly who are justified by faith. So if it's the ungodly who are justified by faith, there is no way that you can be personally righteous. So it is actually those who are sinners who are in desperate need of God's grace. Those are the ones who are justified by faith. All right, so let's look at the second one not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but this is for Christ's sake alone. So why is this one included that they put in here? Well, this is going to address the error that we are justified based on what God does in us. For example, um, he washes away our sins in baptism and then uh, helps us pursue the grace of the other sacraments. Um, using communion to help justify us. Even uh, Roman Catholics would say even with marriage um, is one of the sacraments that would uh, go towards that. But this assumes that justification then is actually an internal act. Um, And it misses that forensic nature of 
of justification of, of the, um, the sinner coming before God um, unjust, unholy. Um, and it also confuses the, um, this with sanctification as, it's, as if it's an ongoing process um, to, to obtain our righteousness. <clears throat> but we know that justification is a one-time act. <clears throat> so, so this was something that um, is, is included in our confession to make sure that we know that this is nothing that was done in us by God. Um, lastly, <clears throat> by imputing faith itself, or not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. Um, this one might hit a little bit more home because what this is saying is uh, this is a- addressing justification that results from a human act, uh, such as when we first believed or evangelical obedience as if this is somehow our own righteousness. Um, Thomas Collier, he is uh, cited often as the nemesis of the particular Baptists. He was the one who, he he adopted this notion that Christians were justified by the very act of believing. Have any of you experienced that or or grown up with that, seen that, um, that yes, you you were justified the moment that you you believed? Pastor Nathan, you've seen it? Yeah, it's similar to my experience too, and, and that was cited. Uh, is that Genesis 15, where, um, where Abraham is, uh, is spoken to, and um, he believes it's accounted to him as righteousness, and that so that's see, you're you're justified when you when you believe. So that's that's when I grew up uh, thinking that um, yeah, I, I did it myself, which was uh, also played out in uh, asking for God to forgive me and to come into my heart every single Sunday because. Since this was my act, did I really do it right? Was it was it genuine? What? So, <clears throat> being that this is um, on ourselves, there is always uncertainty. But the only obedience that brings justification is what the confession is saying: it's Christ. Um, now, the Savoy Confession, and then later this um, our London Baptist Confession, added to the uh, Westminster Confession by stating that this is based on the imputing Christ active and passive obedience. So the active and passive was, was added a little bit later to these two confessions. It's really important to, uh, to take a look at what, what exactly do these mean. Um, <clears throat> active obedience is, is fairly easy to, to understand. It's, you know, it's that, that full heartfelt obedience to the law that God performed uh, throughout his life, and as a result, then we stand 
clothed in his righteousness, earned by Christ, because of his lifetime of true and perfect obedience to the law of God. The passive obedience, though. This is where he willingly offers up to God um, an obedience in the midst of his suffering. Now, you might say, well, uh, that kind of sounds active, too. I mean, he's he's still obeying. Um, That is true. But this kind of goes to show, then, that we're actually looking at these words um, in a grammatical sense, like, you know, the active and passive moods of in grammar. Um, but passive here should really be understood in relation to the Latin word passion, which means uh, obedience in his suffering, in his humiliation, and in his death. So <clears throat> his lifetime of suffering, which um, culminating in his death on the cross, is, is what is actually the basis of the payment of the sin um, or sin debt that we owe. So even though it's, it's passive, it's, it's, it's still active obedience in his humiliation and suffering and in his debt, which accomplishes that um, uh, paying for that debt that we owe. So we see then the reason they put this in is because we are saved by both his his life and his death. And we have to have both um, because we need a perfect righteousness that's acceptable to God, right? But then we also need a propitiation to satisfy the wrath of God. And both of these are accomplished then in his life uh, and his death. But notice this phrase here at the end where um, the highlighted green where it says uh, it's done for their whole and soul righteousness. It's, it's very Christ-centeredness here. Um, to show that the work of Christ provides everything that is necessary for the believer to the point then that they are receiving and resting, I love that word, resting on him and his righteousness alone by faith. Christ accomplishes everything that is needed for our justification. And brothers and sisters, this should bring us tremendous comfort to know that not even a smidgen of your own works is needed here because a smidgen of your own works is going to ruin the whole thing. Christ did it all for us so that we receive and we rest. I really, really love that aspect to it. <clears throat> but going back to, our, uh, to that guy, uh, Thomas Collier, um, who wants to bring, and, and this is our human nature, right? He wants to bring some of his own righteousness, uh, his own works to the mix. Uh, Nehemiah Cox, he refutes Collier with a really important um, observation. <clears throat> he would said this, um, if those that plead most for the interest of good works and our justification, if they would just consider, seriously consider, what themselves dare abide by before the tremendous tribunal of the great judge, they must all fly to Balermin's Tutisimong Este, if I'm saying that right, and put an end to this controversy by acknowledging that they dare not venture into God's sight nor pass out of this world to his judgment seat in their own righteousness. Essentially what he's saying here, on what personal basis outside of Christ would you even dare to stand on before God in his, his judgment? 
And why would you even want to do this when God provides for us that perfect righteousness in Christ? But what is this phrase? Beller means tutissimum este. It is Latin, but it also has a proper name here. This is really this is a really cool aspect. Um, <clears throat> does anyone know who Robert Bellarmine is? The Roman Catholic apologist. Uh, yes, he was a cardinal who um, was very famous for his writings in opposition to uh, the Reformation. Um, John Owens. He even said, um, "Yes, he is one of our greatest and most learned." Adversaries when it comes to, to justification. Um, <clears throat> now, this phrase, tutissimum este, was shorthand that came from a comment that he made in a treatise on justification, and the reformers lit up when they saw this uh, joyfully, not angry. <clears throat> he is, uh, this phrase is sometimes uh, cited regularly by reform writers. So, what does this mean? This is originally in Latin, but, but translated to English. Here is what he said. By reason of the uncertainty of our own righteousness and the danger of vainglory, it is the safest course to repose out whole trust in the mercy and kindness of the grace of God alone. <laughs> so he is a defender of personal righteousness, right? Uh, being a part of Christ, but still ultimately falls back on the gospel and urges others to do the same. Um, he's conceding that, you know, to be safe, and, and that's what uh, tutisimon este really means, um, it means it is very safe. And so that's why the reformers use that in, in the show that, look, going back to Collier saying, basically, dude, if, if not even Robert Bellarmine is suggesting that you lean on your own righteousness, why do you think that your righteousness and your works or anybody else's could sufficiently contribute to the gift of forgiveness and eternal life? So... That was huge when a Roman Catholic even conceded and said, well, yeah, you know what, to be on the safe side, you're probably going to want to rely on the righteousness of Christ. And we would hardly say amen. Yes. Um, And so, the first paragraph then of chapter 11 agrees and circles back on um, all glory. Actually, I forgot to put that in there. At the end, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. This is all glory to him for his mercy and his grace towards us and the faith that we have. It's not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. All right, at this point, is there any questions, comments?
Yeah. Yeah, and I, I like how you put that, that yes, they are, they are truly saved as well. I, that's, I mean, that's how I came to the Lord, thinking that, yeah, uh, I really like that plan. Um, I chose that, and uh, then as I started understanding scriptures and the Lord led me on a, a journey that way, uh, I was like, am I really saved? Oh, wow. Yeah, like yeah, like the uh, parable, the the seeds that were sown. Um, yeah, so the more that you understand, there is that humility of like, oh, am I am I saved? Am I? But but also that comfort to see that oh yes, I I believe the promises of God's word. I believe that He did it all for me. I don't want anything to rely on me because if it did, then I still don't know. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, Pastor Nathan. Yeah, I think it's really important when we think about Catholicism, um, and so often we can just think, oh, well, Roman Catholics think that we're saved by works and we're not, we're saved by faith. Um, but then they actually talk to a Roman Catholic, and Roman Catholicism, they, they, they do say we're saved by faith. They do say we're saved by the death of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they do believe that a righteousness is needed, right? Um, but in every aspect, they mix faith and works. So faith isn't just a resting on Christ. It entails love as well and good deeds. Um, the merit of Christ um, isn't sufficient enough. You need the merit of the saints, Mary. Um, even when you talk about mm. Righteousness. Righteousness is a little bit of Christ, but also some of yours. And uh, but they don't actually, you know, to say it's all on you. That's that's Pelagianism. That's a heresy that they themselves have identified. They argue that the righteousness comes through faith, through participation in the sacraments, and through good works, and all that together serves to justify you. And so a lot of times Protestants can talk to a Roman Catholic and like, well, we really don't have that much, I mean, we have way more in common than, than maybe, you know, um, history has, has kind of led us to believe. And they're confused and they want to partner with Roman Catholics on things. But the confession really gets it, I think nails an important point here. It's not the Holy Spirit working us, righteousness in us. It is Christ alone in our place, substitution. Hmm. And that's the key right there, because the Reformation, if the Reformers would would just agree, okay, the Holy Spirit makes us righteous, it works in us, and therefore we're saved, there would have been no Reformation. This is the point in which they they, they, they parted ways, ultimately, uh, over the fact of imputation. And uh, confession, again, is so important, because that that is the very gospel itself, it's Christ in your place. 
And that's a perfect segue into um, the second paragraph, um, talking about faith. What, what part does uh, uh, faith play in that? Um, <clears throat> because of that very thing about, well, uh, what, about, what about the works? What about that? And the difference between a Roman Catholic and, and a Protestant in terms of their, their works, a Roman Catholic is, has to admit, um, is, is my works good enough. The Protestant is Christ's work was good enough. One's doing those things out of fear. One's doing it out of gratitude. Um, hope, And so the confession then brings out here <clears throat> in this uh, paragraph, um, let me read it quick, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ, so that continuation from chapter or, or paragraph one, and his righteousness is alone the instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Um, So this is the relationship between the the two distinctions, the instrument of faith, and then the actions of faith, which is being addressed. So you see that alone, yet not alone. Um, So that the first part, which is pretty easy, yeah, we can understand uh, faith alone is the instrument of, self, of justification, which is really just a straightforward attempt to guard against any notion of um, works being done on the part of the recipient of justification. But <clears throat> we know that faith is not alone in that same person. Why did they put that here? Which really was an attempt to guard against the notion of a bare faith that just has no... Uh, action or no love. In fact, uh, this is similar to the kind of faith that was possessed by the demons. Uh, believed and it resulted in, in trembling, uh, but there was no action or obviously no love there. This is not the kind of faith that's going to lead towards uh, salvation. <clears throat> um, somebody look up for us uh, Galatians 5 6. Want um, to look at a couple. And then uh, somebody else look up James 2. And uh, there's various verses we'll pick out from James 2. But who has uh, Galatians 5, 6? Madison. That combination, it's not alone. Faith working through love. Um, so it's not just by itself. All right, who's got the, uh, the good verse of, uh, or chapter 2? Okay, Nathan, we're looking at 17, 21, and 22, and 26. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith So the works are, are evidence of justification and faith in someone's life. And Roman Catholicism would, would say that, well, no, that the, you need the works with the faith uh, as if they're both separate and then needed together for justification. 
Um, <clears throat> and so I'd be interested to see how long they took to come up with this paragraph too when they wrote this because it's making that very, dis very specific distinction about what does faith look like with, um, with works. <clears throat> it's accompanied with all other saving graces. So they acknowledge that just for somebody to say, oh yes, I believe, but then you don't see any work in love or work or actions or anything like that. Um, that is not the, the kind of faith that uh, we're talking about here with, with justification. But we're also saying that faith is the only instrument, nothing else with it, that, um, that belongs to justification. Not our, uh, not our works, not our uh, actions of love, um, simply um, faith alone, <clears throat> but accompanied with the works. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I really like that distinction that they made on that. <clears throat> so let's, um, let's move on then to paragraph three. What is the basis of our justification? <clears throat> well, it's, um, this is where the Reformers then turn to the work of Christ um, and his obedience and death. <clears throat> Wait, you just said obedience. That was singular. Uh, then we just get done talking about there is an active obedience, that there is a passive obedience. So why didn't they say that you know, his um, obediences and, and death. Um, good question. Um, <clears throat> these are really just the, the modifiers. Um, so when you join it with obedience, it's simply expressing uh, different ways to consider Christ's life from the incarnation to the cross. It's uh, one single action. So from one perspective, yes, we see his obedience was characterized by his suffering, uh, the passiveness with in that he humbled himself in, in taking on the form of a servant um, and then being obedient to the cross, like we see in Philippians 2. But then we also see an obedience that is active in that he, right? Remember we talked about how he fulfilled all righteousness perfectly, like we see in, in Hebrews 1. So by his obedience and his death, he has accomplished two foundational realities, which they point out in this particular uh, paragraph uh, of his um, of his obedience and work. Um, <clears throat> all right, first one. He did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. Um, pause. What is our debt? Yes, we owe righteousness to God. It goes even further past that, though, too. We are constantly racking up our debit in our sin. Every time that we sin against God, that debit is increasing. Um, so when we come to him, we're actually bringing him the exact opposite of what he demands. Uh, you might think of a bank illustration on a credit card. Um, you get your statement every month, and you're intending to uh, pay that off. Uh, and uh, my current balance right now is uh, an infinite trillion um, and, uh, oh, um, now I'm going to try to attempt to pay that off. Looks like I have, oh, wait, no, an, another infinite trillion in debt. No possible way of ever <clears throat> paying that. Christ did fully just discharge the debt of all those that are justified. Don't just pass over that one. That is that is huge. Um, 
I don't know if we could appreciate that. Um, has anyone been so far in debt, just no hope of getting out, and then someone taking care of that? You're starting to get an idea of that. <clears throat> but, um, but what I want to point out here is that in no way is there any human participation in satisfying the justice of God. Christ paid it all. Um, <clears throat> but then the second part. He did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty that was due to us, he did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. <clears throat> so he endured our punishment. He was a substitute, right? Um, because there did have to be satisfaction for the penalty of sin. Um, God cannot just look over that. Um, there is a penalty for sin. So, as I mentioned earlier, without the remission of sin, there, there is no forgiveness. But note that there's an emphasis that's made um, on the fact that Christ made a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. Why do, why do you think that language is there? Why is that important? It's done. Yep. That's a, a part of that full. It's complete. It's perfect. Jill. And that it's, it was the correct um, satisfaction that it needed. It was Yeah. The proper part means that, that exact part that you mentioned, and then the real meaning, meaning is genuine. Um, so, yes, his obedience and his death... In that, God's justice has been exactly, truly, and perfectly satisfied. Let that sink in as well. No need for penance. Or, no need for penance penance or purgatory. Purgatory. Yep. Christ, again, did it all. Now, Now, this goes against our nature because... We want to do something to, well, let me, let me help you. That's our nature. Let me help you with that. No, I'm good. Well, let me, nope. It's very humbling, but it's also very com- comforting. <clears throat> um, so yes, this, this conclusion should leave us in awe this morning. It should have us just mind blown. Um, justification. It is of free grace. The exact justice of God is completely satisfied. No action on our part except to receive and rest on it. And his rich grace is glorified in this amazing work of justification. Um, I'm going to do this anyway. I know we're running short on time, but Somebody look up Ephesians 1, 6 through 7. Um, This should also bring encouragement to us. Ephesians 1, 6 through 7. Ethan, thank you. Of 
We have that now. Ephesians 1 is just it's an amazing chapter on, on, on brothers and sisters, this is what you have right now. Be comforted by this. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. All through the riches of God's grace, you have that now. <clears throat> Justification has been done. Now, it's not an ongoing action. It is a one-time uh, action. <clears throat> All right. Um, we'll go through one more paragraph. Paragraph four. <clears throat> God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for the justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit in time does actually apply Christ to them. Have you ever heard the answer to the question given, Oh, hey, when, when were you saved? Uh, what's your testimony? Oh, yeah. I was saved about 2,000 years ago. Have you ever heard that one? I, uh, I understand it um, because that's when, when Christ's work was done. That's when redemption was done. It, yes, uh, Christ made it possible, but is, is, that, when I was, is that when I was saved? Um, um, at, at first, it does seem kind of like a theological reply, um, but it crosses into the doctrine of justification from eternity, or at least um, from the accomplishment of the redemption of Christ at the cross. What am I talking about here? This is a teaching that argues that since, well, you know, since God eternally decreed to justify the elect by Christ, their justification is certain, Yes? So then we were never under the wrath and curse of God. We were always, even from our birth, his children. So similarly, if your answer was to that question, I was saved about 2,000 years ago, yes, you are correct in asserting that Christ's work was done and completed at the cross, but this is where we start to veer off course, unwittingly drawing a wrong conclusion that this enacted justification then, or that, that his work on the cross enacted justification for all the elect. Boom, right there. And so now we're not under God's wrath. <clears throat> but that is not the case. This is the word to focus on in this paragraph, personally. Um, <clears throat> this is really key in our justification in the word personally. Um, Benjamin Keach, he comments on this saying, all before they are in Christ are under condemnation because the Holy Ghost frequently ascribes our actual and our personal justification to faith. Uh, another <clears throat> reformer draws, um, Thomas Goodwin draws this out in more details, noting that there are three stages of uh, motion which we um, have to consider with um, justification. These are the three up here, <clears throat> really quick. Um, justified when first elected, not through our own persons, yet in Christ, he had our persons then given to Christ. That, um, you might see that as the uh, pactum salutis, the covenant of salvation. Then second, the further act of justifying us, which passes from God toward us in Christ upon the payment and performance by Christ at his resurrection. This happened in history 
this is also, you can put that under Historia Salutis, the history of salvation. Pause. Okay, so to understand this really fully, we have to note that those first two actions happen outside of us. And though they concern us and they are toward us, they did not happen, or God did not act upon us, only as existing, though, in Christ, um, our head. It did not happen to us yet personally. And so we have this third stage. God judges and pronounces his elect, his elect, ungodly and unjustified until they believe, and the Holy Spirit gives them um, that to see. Um, And that... You have the uh, ordo, ordo salutis, order of salvation. And so this is basically then what paragraph four is saying. Um, in time, we are redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. But we're not justified until the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ, and so we believe. I like what Keats said on this. <clears throat> A man cannot be dead and alive at the same time. He can't be condemned and justified at the same time. He cannot be a child of the devil and a child of God at the same time. So that's why the Reformers then put into this paragraph, we are not justified personally until the time comes. Otherwise, there's no need for repentance if we're eternally justified. No need for repentance, no need to preach on that or anything like that. All right. Running out of time here, so I'll stop at paragraph four. Is there any questions um, or comments on what you've seen so far? None. Okay. Mine's blown. I'm, I'm going to take it. Um, and it should be, because this is an amazing foundational pillar of our faith. Justification. So uh, we'll finish this uh, next week, and, um, and then we'll also go into one of my favorite topics, adoption. Um, and justification and adoption beautifully go together. So we'll take a look at that next week. Let's go ahead and uh, close in prayer.